Hey guys, it's Chad Dundas coming to you from Co-Main Event Podcast Headquarters. As most of you probably know by now, there's no new CME this week, owing to my intrepid co-host Ben Folks' decision to go on vacation with his family. Uh, so I guess as I record this, he's probably trying to keep one or both of his small children from perishing in an icy North Idaho lake. The CME will return next week with a normal episode letting you know what we think about all the stuff that happens this weekend at UFC Fight Night 76. This week, however, we wanted to both make an announcement and give you the opportunity to catch up on an old episode of the show if you are either a new listener or just in case it's been so long that you forgot about it. Uh, first, the announcement. We're going to be doing another installment of the Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club coming up very soon hopefully when ben is back next week we'll announce the particulars of that uh what book we're going to read and what the deadline will be for you to get all your thoughts to us to include in the show first though we're going to turn back the clock to the first cme book club where we discussed tank abbott's novel bar brawler uh so listen to that and it'll be a pretty good primer for what to expect the second time around uh again we will have all the information about that coming up on next week's show first though we wanted to remind you that each and every episode of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by draftkings.com if you are a fantasy mma fanatic and you know all the fighters you watch all the matches and you're listening to an mma podcast right now well then draftkings.com could be for you at DraftKings. you could win huge cash prizes each and every time you play just select five fighters stay under the salary cap outscore your competition and you could be on your way to a massive payday score points for significant strikes takedowns advances knockdowns and more these are the biggest daily fantasy mma contests anywhere and only DraftKings has them you can play to win your piece of one billion dollars in prizes that DraftKings has given out this year don't miss out Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use the promo code CME to play daily fantasy MMA for free this weekend during Fight Night 76. That's DraftKings.com. It's DraftKings.com. And so now, without any further ado, we're going to kick off myself, Ben Folks, and Sir Nigel Longstock talking about Tank Abbott's book, Bar Brawler. That starts right now. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club, the world's first and finest book club, hosted by Chad Dundas and Ben Folks. Well, Ben, I hope that the sound of the ice cubes tinkling against the glass of our sirens do not too terribly distract the listener from the first ever installment of the co-main event podcast book club as we are here this week to discuss the novel bar brawler by david lee tank abbott part one of a trilogy the before there were rules trilogy there's no e at the end of before i assume that's on purpose because it's in the damn title. It's in the title, it's on the cover, and it's also in the legal uh, <laughs> uh, fine print at the end of the book. Yeah. So you have to think that it's on purpose yeah. and done for effect. To what end, we do not know. But uh, we have embarked upon this journey. Uh, 
those of you who are just joining us here and have no idea what this book club podcast is all about, uh, take a number because we don't really either. Yeah, uh, we we just decided we were going to do it. We read the the entire thing, uh, we, both of us. Yeah, I, we mixed up some sirens. We invited our good friend Sir Nigel Longstock. Say hello, Sir Nigel. Good day to you, sirs. Now, Sir Nigel, we should clarify, has not read this or, to my knowledge, any book. No. Uh, but is here to provide both dramatic readings, uh, of which there will be plenty, uh, and, uh, you know, he's kind of a control group, because he doesn't know what the fuck is going on either. Nonetheless, I feel like Sir Nigel's commentary on Bar Brawler is going to be true in spirit, Yeah. even though he hasn't technically read the book, as I would assume maybe some of our listeners yeah. have not read the book. And I think he's on like his fourth or fifth siren at this point so oh, yeah. it could get he's been drinking all day so, so Nigel, would you say that you have a new favorite cocktail in the siren oh yes absolutely and it's certainly clearing up my various infections <laughs> well okay so anyway I, yeah no already if, we're helping humanity if you don't know who we are i can't imagine how you got here but i'm chad dundas from espn.com that's been folks from mmajunkie.com and usa today we host the wildly popular co-main event podcast uh, mixed martial arts podcast, uh, but when no we, reading required. No, yeah, that's right. No required reading. When we found out that Tank Abbott was publishing what he promises will be a trilogy of novels, we decided that we had to do something special. So here we are for the first of what we hope are many uh, installments of the Co-Main Event Book Club. I'm we, not reading the other two. I'm going to say that right no, now. No, there's no way in hell anyone is reading the other two of those okay. books. And I would put it 50-50 if they ever even see the light of day. You're saying you don't think Tech Abbott has written the other two? I'm saying there's a chance. <laughs> anyway, we've both read the book. We solicited some comments from the co-main event universe. We got some excellent ones. Some really great comments. I'm surprised. The co-main event listener group knocked it out of the park. With the first book club, which is the kind of thing that leads me to believe there could be future book clubs. Yeah. Hopefully with better books. Yeah, hopefully with books we actually want to read rather than are just curious like a car wreck. Uh, I think, first of all, we deserve a little credit for probably absolutely at least doubling Tank Abbott's sales of Barbara. Yeah, actually we got some... Uh, some mail to the podcast accusing us of being in like we're going to get a cut of the sales oh if only which i thought holy shit we need to think about that for the future <laughs> whoever we do for the next one we need to take a cover a, co a, a cut of the sales no i mean if if tank abbott's life has been anything like the life of his protagonist walter fox with two x's by the way uh as, showing restraint <laughs> and remarkable restraint not not putting three x's on there but if his life has actually been anything like that, he needs all that money for alcohol, uh, you know, legal defense fund, and eventually rehab. Uh, because, man, Walter Fox is in some shit. So, yeah, I guess without further ado, we, we can uh, begin what I hope is a free-form and wide-ranging discussion of Bar Brawler that will include as many of the listener comments as we possibly can. Hopefully we get through all of them. Uh, and, you know, as I guess we do when discussing someone's art, let's let's go ahead and start with the positives. Criticism sandwich? Yeah, we'll go ahead and make the criticism sandwich. Okay. We'll start with the positives of, of Barbara. The first positive that I can think of is, hey, man, Tank Abbott wrote a book. Yeah. You know, which uh, is more than we probably could have expected from him, especially given... Most of the recent interviews and personal appearances 
that we've seen from him. Uh, Wait, you're saying that when you see that YouTube video of Tank Abbott sitting in a lawn chair in the parking lot of what I think is probably an MMA event, and he is slurring his words almost incomprehensibly before threatening to put a Ferragamo shoe up our asses, you don't look at that and think, prolific author. No, I don't. And let me say, one of the things we're certain of about this book is that he wrote this himself. <laughs> and as we've talked about on the podcast before, I get tired of people pretending like these other MMA guys are writing their own books. Like when we sit around and we pretend that Forrest Griffin sat down at his computer and wrote his book, or Uriah Faber wrote a book, or whatever. In the smoky light of dawn. Like, none of that is true, as we know. Away. Those guys... Chael Sonnen did not write Those that guys book. did not write those books. What they did was, most likely... They did some interviews with a real actual writer, and the writer took those interviews and turned them into a cohesively written narrative that hopefully stayed as true as possible to the words of the subject. Um, on the other hand, there's no way on God's green earth that anyone besides Tank Abbott actually wrote this novel and or edited it for content or style. Are we and that is one of the positives. We, I was going to ask, are we still on the positives? Yeah, I think that's a positive. Tank Abbott wrote a novel himself, okay. all by himself. Yeah, <laughs> right? No, and, you know, it even mentions in, I can't remember if it's the introduction or the preface, both of which are written by Tank Abbott, <laughs> of course, <laughs> uh, where he talks about how he was initially uh, unsure if he could do it because uh, he knew that he he had a book in him, but... Grammar and spelling and shit were getting in the way. Which is a sign that you're about to embark on a great novel <laughs> when the author apologizes in advance for his grammar and spelling. Now, this leads me into what I can pinpoint as the two other positives of Tank Abbott's novel. Positive number two is that the writing isn't the worst part. It's really not. It could, like, as you said when you started reading it shortly before I did, it could be a lot worse no, writing wise. Yeah. It's obviously like a very much the work of an amateur and it reads like somebody you know you might encounter in a high school creative writing class but you know and it's it's obviously not written by somebody who really understands writing or fiction or structure or narrative or anything like that but you can read it it's not unreadable which surprised the shit out of me we're still in the positives here by the way the final positive that I can think of to say about Tank Abbott's novel is that, in fact, this book stirred an emotion in me, which I think we'll talk about later on. But if you would have told me before I read this that Tank Abbott would have written a book that would possibly stir an emotion in me that wasn't just tedium or the feeling of, holy shit, I can't believe I have to read this whole thing, I would have told you that you were crazy. But it did... And that has to be considered a positive, I think. Now, the emotions, the emotions that it stirred were revulsion and eventually anger. But emotions nonetheless. Emotions that weren't just, oh my god, this is bad. Yeah. You know? No, it was not uh, a chore to read it. However, I should mention that um, my wife said that when she came in the room, she could always tell. Because I would read on my Kindle. Um, so you can't really tell what I'm reading. Um, she would always be able to tell that I was reading Tank Abbott's novel by the, the look on my face. Um, well, this is a novel. It that wasn't a smile. 
I'm going to say that. You read lines of this out loud to your partner, right? <laughs> Until she demands that you stop. That's, at least that was my experience. Right. And I guess the, the, this final positive of the stirring of the emotion in us leads us into what is undoubtedly the worst part of this novel. And that is how the content of the book itself comments on the main character and ultimately the author. And that, I think, uh, this will be set up here with a, a short reading from the prologue, uh, which, again, Tank writes himself. Um, and I, I would like Sir Nigel to, to read a selection I have highlighted here from the prologue, which I think really puts a weird twist on things. Sir Nigel, if you would. <clears throat> Sir Nigel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> reading the part of Walter Fox. <clears throat> This is actually reading the part of Tank Abbott. Oh. He wrote the prologue. Reading the part of Tank Abbott, preparing to play the part of Walter Fox. <clears throat> From the prologue. What I write here, while based on general personal experiences, is a fictionalized account of choices made and consequences earned. It is not an autobiography by any means, but rather how I view the spirit of my life through the eyes of a protagonist who faces a series of difficult choices. That's not true, but <laughs> yeah, okay. But what we what we have here, um, and the both the prologue and the introduction seem to devote a lot of space to Tank telling us, a, this is basically my life. This is basically about me. And b, I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks about it, which no. you know must be true because he has to say it half a dozen times. That's what you do when you really don't give a fuck, is you keep repeating. Keep telling everyone how much you don't give a fuck. Yeah, we need to, before we go into any further discussion of this, we need to talk about what a strange footing it puts the reader of your novel on when the foreword and the introduction, both written by you, uh, explain again and again that while what you are reading is fiction, the main character who you refer to using the word hero, by the way, <laughs> in the introduction, is really, really concretely based on yourself. Yes. Because what you do when you write that is that you squander all of the political capital that you would otherwise retain as a fictional writer. Yeah, the whole reason you do fiction, really. <laughs> well, and I feel like... Uh... The, Walter Fox is what I like to refer to in the in the literary world as the scumbag narrator. And That's a technical term. Yeah, I love a good scumbag narrator. Some of my favorite books are written from the perspective of scumbag narrators, which probably says something horrible about me. Uh, but it can be done extremely well. However, I, here's one example that we were talking about before, and one I think we'll probably keep coming back to. Uh, classic novel Lolita. Right. By Vladimir Nabokov. Now, it's about a, it's from the perspective of a scumbag narrator, a pedophile and murderer, Humbert Humbert. But uh, I think one of the things that would make it a very different reading experience is if the foreword were by Vladimir Nabokov saying, this is basically my life. Yeah, see, then Lolita you can't really enjoy it as a product of fiction. Is cheered as one of the greatest novels ever written. Some people will tell you it's the greatest novel ever written for the reason that you just pointed out. Because Vladimir Nabokov does not say at the beginning, "This 
pedophile <laughs> is me. Because when you start to read Bar Brawler, you become it becomes clear really, really fast that the protagonist, Walter Fox, is a complete and utter piece of shit. That he has almost no redeeming qualities yep. whatsoever. Pretty which much would a, be a... awesome if that was your book and was not based on your own life. Yes. Yeah. If we could somehow... But I don't know. If we could throw out the part where Tank Abbott tells us that this is based, at least in spirit, on his own life. I don't really know what that means, by the way. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of talk about honor and the warrior's code and, and other total horseshit in the in the uh, preface and the introduction. I guess we have a, another uh, brief excerpt that Sir Nigel is going to read on that subject. Yes. Sir Nigel, take it away. <clears throat> Do you want to say your name again? or Sir Nigel. <laughs> Yes, mm. we all know who I am. The real people of the world know that if you beg for a beating and you get it, then it's your own fault. I have obliged well over 200 beggars of various degrees in my life, in and out of the cage, and it was my pleasure. No one gets over on me. If you think you have and you're still untouched, then I just haven't gotten around to you yet. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I do trust him, too. Now, uh, see, in that... That's not Walter Fox. No, that's Tank that's Abbott. That's still from the prologue. That's Tank Abbott, who at this time of this writing is probably in his 40s. I don't know how long it took him to write this book, but closing in on 50 years old, and he's going around telling you that if you think you've got over on him, he just hasn't gotten around to you. The man is still going around punishing people who are begging for it at his age? <laughs> All right, well, let's... Let me read a user or a listener comment or two, uh, just because I want to try to get through as many of them as we can, because God knows people took the time to read this fucker <laughs> and email us their, their thoughts. So the first comment comes from Ross Jarborg, whose name I probably am slaughtering every time I say it, but send me a phonetic you, spelling. Yeah, man, what do you I'll, expect? I'll you know what Chad Dennis is going to do. He, he, he can't read and pronounce shit. He claims the honor of being the first uh, listener comment to be read on the air because he's the first guy who sent us his commentary. So here we go. This is what Ross has to say. No, it wasn't good, but it was something. <laughs> Gripping, exciting, stupefyingly compelling. I had to read more. I tweeted Ben, I hope he beats someone up in every chapter. And as Ben responded, I wasn't disappointed on that count. No, that's what you can count on. With most chapters starting with the incessant beep, beep, beep of Walter's alarm, and our protagonist then seemingly going through a Groundhog Day-like existence, it all started to run together. The use of the present tense added to the tedium, wrestling with Adolf, riding the duct-taped interceptor to the gym, hitting the heavy bag, working at the liquor store, cracking open a clip of soldiers, making a siren, cruising with a member of chaos, and then inevitably, brutally beating someone senseless outside a bar. As much as I rooted for Walter to give the next loser the beatdown he was quote-unquote begging for, I also found my distaste for him as a human being growing. As I watch, as the watch commander says in the last chapter, this guy should be doing five years in jail, not 180 days. Every evening he plots a new felony assault. Every day he drives desperately drunk. But somehow <laughs> I also recognized the style, the kitchen sink alcoholism and resentless monotony. 
Then I realized Walter Fox is to Tank Abbott what Hank Chinaski is to Charles Bukowski. Wow. In many My respects, <laughs> Bar Brawler is Abbott's ham on rye or women. Don't get me wrong, there's a vast difference in literary standard, but the similarity is there. Maybe Bukowski is even what Tank is aiming for? Wow. Good show, Ross Jarvoy. Yes, yes indeed. Now that's that's one of the most coherent readings I think you could come up with of Bar Brawler. Also, I, I found it interesting referring to the watch commander saying, what is this guy only doing 180 days for? He should be doing five years. Uh, I had the similar feeling... Also, when uh, at his sentencing, the judge is saying, you, sir, are a maniac. Right. Uh, the blue blood judge. The blue blood Wait, lady the judge. The blue blood lady judge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who he knew would not be on his side. Uh, it's those weird moments where we get somebody outside the narrator's perspective saying, this is what, what you are. Yeah. And us, the reader, goes, yes, that person is right. Yeah. You are a maniac. You should be in jail. Like, you have committed dozens of felony assaults and then, while out on bond pending a trial for assault, committed more assaults. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. And you know what? Let's make the point before we forget. I just thought of this when we brought up the fact that Walter Fox, your narrator, refers to the judge as the blue blood lady judge. And even, I think, makes a comment prior to the trial that he knew he was screwed when he found out that he had a lady judge. Uh, Sir Nigel, if you would. Yes. Mm. The judge is an old blue blood, tall and skinny with grayish brown hair. I can tell she's an intellectual with no concept of the street rules of behavior or of personal combat. Why did John agree to go into her courtroom without a fight? He should have known that a blue blood judge wouldn't be sympathetic to me. She's the type of... She's the type of person who's read a thousand books but never lived a page. Oh, Oh, shit. What? Having written one book... (laughs) All right, well, Leah, let me me say, before we forget, this is what I was going to say. This book is terrifyingly racist. (laughs) In numerous ways, not the least of which is the, I think, the, the second or third chapter of the book. You mean the chapter where they go to Mexico yeah, and it establishes nothing except that they walk around shoving Mexican people off the street and yelling, get out of my way, Paco? Yes. Is that the chapter that you're talking chapter. about? And it advances the plot not at all? Yeah, it's incredibly racist and, again, underscores the fact that you're reading a novel that simply must be based on a man's actual life. Because if it were not, there would be no reason to include that chapter. Now, here we get to something that uh, those of us who have taken uh, a few creative writing, fiction writing classes, and taught a couple creative writing, fiction writing classes, one thing you have to tell, especially like intro to creative writing students, is the worst reason to put something in a story in fiction is because it really happened. Right. That in itself is not a good enough reason to put it in there. And yet, that does seem like maybe about all it took to make it into this novel. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a bunch of stuff in here where you're certain that the only reason is it, it's included is because it's something that actually happened to the, to the author. Not the least of which is that almost every chapter begins with him waking up in the morning and ends with him going to bed <laughs> at night, even if nothing happened during that day. Yeah, or if nothing happened other than the shit that had happened during other days. Okay, but here, maybe 
Chad, and this is just a theory I'm going to throw out there. Maybe we're not giving Walter Fox and Tank Abbott uh, enough room. Maybe, I, I realize this is a long shot, maybe Tank Abbott knows exactly what he's doing crafting the Walter Fox character. Is it possible? Are you gonna? Are you trying to float the theory that this is a satire? I wouldn't go so far as to say satire, but maybe Tank Abbott knows he is creating the scumbag narrator. Could it be? No. <laughs> no, it could be. It could be. And let me say this. If this is satire, then it is brilliant and subtle and expertly done. Because if you set out to write a novel that so thoroughly eviscerates the bullshit mindset of this quote-unquote street warrior, you probably could not do it on purpose. You probably not would not be as successful in pointing out every contradiction and making every piece of, of hypocrisy clear to the reader, as happens in Bar Brawler. So, in fact... I would love it if this book was satire, and as we, you know, we discussed before we recorded the book club, there's one part in this novel where, for no reason at all, Walter Fox parks <laughs> in a handicap spot. That really stuck with you, didn't it? He just puts it in there, that little detail, for no reason at all, again, because I'm certain that it actually happened. But if you're writing a satire, boom, you just did it. That's perfect. If you're trying to make people like your main character, then that choice is... Unthinkable. But I'm saying there's another option. It's not necessarily doesn't have to be satire, but that we are supposed to find the main character de- deplorable, um, but also kind of sad and like a weird sympathy for him. I here, I, I know I mentioned I love the scumbag narrator. One of my favorite scumbag narrators of all time uh, is the narrator from Dennis Johnson's uh, book of connected short stories, Jesus' Son. Great book. Uh, yeah. One of, one of my favorites, uh, and to show an example of how you render the scumbag narrator in, in the act, on the page. Sir Nigel, would you please read the selection I, I have shown you here? <clears throat> yes, sir. This is, uh, I should mention beforehand, uh, the narrator talking about uh, a acrimonious situation he has going with his girlfriend. <clears throat> Once, as we stood arguing at a street corner, I punched her in the stomach. She doubled over and broke down crying. A car full of young college men stopped beside us. She's feeling sick, I told them. Bullshit, one of them said. You elbowed her right in the gut. He did, he did, he did, she said, weeping. I don't remember what I said to them. I remember loneliness crushing first my lungs, then my heart, then my balls. They put her in the car with them and drove away. But she came back. Now see, that's the scumbag narrator... In, in practice, right? Here we got this guy arguing with his girlfriend, punches her in the stomach. He's a scumbag right. at that point. Uh, and yet somehow seems human and sympathetic uh, by the time we read this entire thing. Uh, does, does Tank Abbott, is he going for that? Is it possible that, he, that that's what his goal was? I would love it if that was the, was the goal, was the ultimate point of all of this let me read another you reader comment uh from mark orenberger that speaks a little bit to this mark writes you know that scene in the princess bride where wallace sean's <laughs> character keeps saying inconceivable and then mandy patinkin says you keep using that word i do not think it means what you think it means that scene kept playing in my head whenever walter fox talked about quote-unquote self-defense now <laughs> 
I'm not a criminal defense attorney, but I'm pretty sure that if you get out of your car, chase someone down who insulted you, and nearly beat him to death, it doesn't count as self-defense, even if the guy you chase down throws the first punch once you've caught him. I also thought about that Princess Bride scene whenever Walter Fox talked about quote-unquote justice. Minor disrespect equal physical beating? I'm not sure those two are a wash. Also, has there been any reaction from Morrissey or Johnny Marr to the bizarre endorsement that they receive from Tank Abbott? We should say Tank Abbott drives around listening. Walter Fox. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, see? I just did it right yeah. there. Walter Fox drives around listening exclusively to the Smiths. Yeah, and has been known to go to bars and piss off the DJs by repeatedly requesting the Smiths. Also from Mark Orenberger, are there are you aware of any linguists currently studying the strange argo of meathead hooligans in Happenden Harbor, California, using the words pre-tuning, soldiers, clips, beggars, etc.? And that leads me into a comment from Ollie from Manhattan, who writes, For what it's worth, I stopped reading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment in order to read <laughs> Abbott's Bar Brawler before your show. It I'm seemed sorry. harmless enough, but last night before taking my girlfriend to a nice dinner in Tribeca, I suggested we pre-tune with some beers. <laughs> His words are insidious. Another comment, this one from Angry Little Feet. I strongly suggest pre-tuning with a few soldiers before snuggling in for the evening with this beautiful disaster. Four out of five stars based mostly on unintentional hilarity. Okay, a couple things there. First of all, it is true that, say what you will, Bar Brawler does create a world. I find myself slipping into the lingo Almost unironically yeah, at times. Yeah, that's a real danger here. Yeah, it's like it when you start saying dude to make fun of people who say dude. Yeah. And then 10 years later, you're calling everybody dude. Yeah. And just fist bumping all the time. Yeah. Asking people what they bench. Yeah. You know, it, it that does happen. And there does seem to be a complete world that he has rendered here. Uh, the thing about, I'm glad, though, that the first commenter pointed out the assault where uh, the one that Walter Fox is eventually convicted for, right. which he could have been convicted for any of them, yeah, really. any chapter in this book. Uh, and here's the thing. When you think about this as fiction, just pure fiction, right? He can create any scenario he wants. Any scenario where when the narrator beats somebody senseless nearly to death, uh, he could create a scenario where it seems justified, if not required, yeah. from our narrator. Instead... This The assault that he creates here is one where he's driving his car, he sees a man uh, beating up his girlfriend, which you think, aha, here's, a, here's Walter Fox here he the goes. hero. He's, yeah, he, he has crafted the perfect situation where he steps in there and anything he does is, is pretty much justified. But that's not what he beats the guy up for. No. The guy, he, he has to break as the guy chases his girlfriend across the street. And then when he has to break suddenly, because he was also fiddling with a cold soldier that he had stuck down between the seat, uh, which is why he, he broke a little bit late, the dude yells at him about his driving. That's when Walter Fox gets out, chases the dude down. The dude says some shit about Walter Fox being a fat ass. Walter Fox then assaults the guy uh, and then is later brought up on charges for it. It's, it like, it's like he wanted to do that. Like he wanted to go out of his way to create this perfect environment where uh, assault is, is totally justified and couldn't do it. 
Yeah. Even in a fictional world where Tank Abbott is allowed to create the everything about it, he's allowed to control everything about it. He still presents scenario after scenario where Walter Fox is to blame, yes. where there's no question that Walter Fox is to blame. Let me read two more user comments because I think the subject matter here might sidetrack us for a moment. So I want to get, get them both out there. The first one comes from Jared McKenzie. Did either of you bastards think this read like a romance novel? Hear me out. <laughs> Tank was trying to express a deep sexual desire to quote unquote fight. While he uses very little dialogue to express it externally, the internal dialogue and actions seem to indicate a longing, lustful urge to quote-unquote fight. It would only make sense then, because of the nature of the author and the fact that he passes up on a lot of girls in this book, that he is writing this as a confession of his deep, brooding homosexuality. All of the internal conflict and risk of getting caught, even going to jail if he pursues the only thing that makes him happy— Man fucking. Tank Abbott is gay, <laughs> says Jared McKenzie in all caps. And then parenthetically, he adds, not that there's anything wrong with that, and most likely a white supremacist. Okay, hold on. Uh, I've thought about this angle. I did not go so far as to say Tank Abbott, the author, is gay, but that perhaps uh, if it's possible that Tank Abbott did this, as Chad suggests, as satire, or as I suggest, as the knowingly scumbag narrator, it's also possible that he created a a violent, repressed homosexual in Walter Fox. Not necessarily, again, not that there's anything wrong with, well, the violent part, there's something wrong with that. Uh, but uh, it's not that uh, it would necessarily reflect on the author, but that would be like an interesting angle if this whole narrator, if it was obvious to the reader that that he were violent, like repressing his homosexual urges and it was coming out violently. Uh, a section that I have highlighted, two sections, two readings, I would like Sir Nigel to read from my section, uh, which I have tentatively entitled in my own notes, Walter and Women. Uh, the very few glimpses we get of Walter Fox's attitudes towards women. women. The first one happens when he sees a strange girl come into the liquor store. Sir Nigel, if you would, page 85. <clears throat> this takes place in a liquor store. Where Walter Fox works, yes. Okay, excellent. Mm. Out of nowhere, in walks a smoking hot chick. I take another big swig of my beer that's in a Coca-Cola cup and think to myself that I need to get a piece of this. <laughs> she walks around the cooler and grabs some wine coolers and comes up to the register. Can I get you anything else? I ask helpfully. Like a ride to my house, I think. No, that's it, she answers. Okay, that's going to be 340. I haven't seen you around before. What's your name? Kathy, she says with a giggle, grabbing her bag. Bye now, be good. She turns and parades out like a peacock. Her feathers spread across her back like a prized bird you'd see in a world. Come on, Nigel. <laughs> like a prized bird you'd see in a world-class zoo. When she leaves through the door, it's like a vacuum sucking out all the air. I raise the Coca-Cola to my mouth and gulp down my beer in one long swig. I stare out the window into the empty abyss of nothingness. She was like a ton of bricks hitting me between the eyes. It wasn't the ass. There are nice asses everywhere. There was just something in her personality that made me want to have a chance with her. Well, that seems like as good a place as any to take a quick break 
and remind you that portions of each and every co-main event podcast are presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. The NASM guarantees that you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at MyUSATrainer.com. MyUSATrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See MyUSATrainer.com for details. Now back to our ongoing discussion of Tank Abbott's Bar Brawler. Okay. My God, Sam. <laughs> okay. Well, first Again, of all... Again, the writing, not the worst part. Well, the... Is it? <laughs> the uh, the empty abyss of nothingness. Yeah. Uh, the Where he s- compares her to a peacock and then immediately <laughs> like a okay. prized bird that you might see in a world-class zoo. It's really classy. Yeah. That's, like, that's... think it's the classiest zoo you've ever been to and then multiply it by ten. That's the kind of bird we're talking about. Not okay. like a petting zoo. No. Also, um, what we have here is a scenario where a woman unknown to Walter Fox walks in, grabs a wine cooler, pays for it, gives him the minimal amount of conversation based on uh, his attempts to engage her in conversation, uh, then walks out. And what he concludes is, it was something about her personality <laughs> that, that, that made me want to have a chance with her. Well, okay, good, she said, grabbing she, her she, bag. She did say that. Okay, now, the other. eventually Walter Fox does find, not love exactly, but... Just when you were thinking... He fucks his roommate's girlfriend. He fucks his roommate's girlfriend. Shelly. Uh, Shelly is the only g- woman he has any kind of uh, long-term interaction with. And there's only one sex scene rendered between them. Even though they seem to hang out multiple times, it seems like Walter Fox is more interested in getting drunk with Shelly and then passing out. I don't know if the sex is supposed to be implied after that, but the one time the sex is anywhere near rendered on the page uh, is on page... 251, Sir Nigel, if you would. <clears throat> this, I, I should add, uh, after he and Shelley have gotten drunk at a strip club and then pulled off at a seedy motel. Perfect. <clears throat> I fall on the bed and watch as she slowly takes off her clothes. She pulls me to the edge of the bed and I grab her smooth inner thigh and squeeze hard. My hand is four inches from her crotch, and she is ready as I get my own private version of the Chinese water torture on my wrist. We fall together in a jumble on the bed, my face buried in the scent of her hair. We melt together as my head spins and our bodies twist. Okay. In light of that, as and that's the sex scene. That's the one sex scene among dozens and dozens of violent scenarios presented in a bar brawler. In light of that, I must conclude that our narrator, Walter Fox, has never had sexual intercourse with a woman. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of whenever you would hear Biggie Smalls rap about having sex with a woman, and the overall impression that you got was, he's never done this before. <laughs> he has no idea what this is like. It's like that scene in uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin when Steve Carell is trying to talk about how boobs feel. And it's <laughs> yes. just like, it, it betrays him as a virgin. It's like the same effect 
Except now I have a huge boner from listening to that. No. Can I read this comment from John Callahan? Please. All right. From John Callahan. My overall impression of this work is almost sublime sadness. Walter Fox is a protagonist living a vastly empty, narcissistic, alcoholic life. His world is so small and sad I could scarcely comprehend how he was able to maintain such a consistent stance of... The world is against me and every day is a battle. It must be tedious and tiring to always be searching for some way to physically vindicate yourself against some slight, real or imagined, where you imagine yourself as the one and only focus of the people you encounter. Everywhere Walter goes, someone or some group is trying to get him. He believes he is an innocent in a hostile world, and because of this, he is above all he encounters, because what he does is bring justice and balance the scales in a cruel world. Walter almost never goes outside of this ideology. He never, not for one moment, honestly questions what he's doing with his life, and this is perhaps the biggest failure of the work. Not the only one, but the biggest one. Now, Wait, hold on. Let's, let, yeah, let's, there's, there's one more paragraph that I want to read, but let's let's... Talk about this briefly because almost the entire second half of this book, when not involved in the minutia of Walter Fox's self-defense claim in his assault trial, which is bullshit. Yeah. Both the claim and, according to Walter Fox, the trial. Yeah. However, though, the, some of the details of the trial, I asked your wife about it, who is an attorney. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> she assured me in no uncertain terms. No, it couldn't happen. Legally impossible, yeah. some of the things he said happened. But the second half of this book it, it g- deals a lot with Walter Fox's inner struggle to decide what he wants to do with his life. Yeah. How do you know Walter Fox is thinking about his life? He says, I thought about my life. So like, I, he tells you when he's thinking about his life. I assume that John Callahan read that and decided that it was not... Genuine. Sincere? Yeah. yeah, not sincere. Uh, here's the, the last couple paragraphs of this comment. My question is why? Is this nature or nurture? And his world is, much like the hobbits, almost exclusively homosocial. <laughs> Until the character Shelley came along, I was beginning to think the rage and anger Walter was experiencing was due to some latent homosexual desire that could never be fulfilled. Is all this physical aggression toward men a poor substitute and revulsion for the intimacy he wants but cannot have? The scenes with Shelley felt forced and lacked or and tacked on, and I never really got any sense that Walter desired her. And then, of course, we need to look at Adolf. Adolf is Walter Fox's dog. Yeah, and if you're wondering why he called him the, why he named the dog Adolf, it's because he suggested it maybe jokingly, and a friend said, you can't name a dog Adolf, and that was it for Walter Fox. As soon as you tell him he can't do something, then he is obliged to do it, which one, makes you wonder how he's not sucked into a bunch of Tom Sawyer whitewashing the fence scenarios just daily. Or a series of homosexual encounters. Well, there you go. Here's John Callahan's comment on Adolf the dog. I think Adolf is actually a man, the object of Walter's desire, and was only made a dog to make the relationship acceptable and palatable to the author. And Walter also enjoyed wearing a dress. Really enjoyed it. But this is perhaps the weakest of my evidence. (laughs) I like the man who can admit when he has presented the weakest part of his evidence. Here's, Here's Callahan's last paragraph. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts of this work, and I'm curious as to who you think Tank Abbott was writing this book for. Who is the audience? Are there people who read this book and admire Walter slash Tank? See? Even this guy reads Walter as Tank. 
Are there people that admire Walter slash Tank and believe that this is a good way, a noble and honest way of living in the world? Okay. On the issue of the whole homosexuality thing, which I think would make this book so much more entertaining and complex if, yeah. if Tank had done that on purpose, crafted this violently repressed homosexual character. But, I mean, it begs the, begs the point. We're not making this up because we got multiple listener comments yeah, who all it, said gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong with that as long as you're not beating people up to deny your homosexual urges. Um, here's something I, th- I found interesting uh, when I read some of these comments and, and read the book. Uh, from what I think is maybe one of the greatest essays on boxing ever, Norman Mailer's piece about the death of Benny the Kid Perrette. Uh, at the hands of Emil Griffith, who uh, had been rumored to be gay, uh, Benny the Kid Perrette, uh called him out on it publicly, uh, claiming that he was gay, accusing him of being gay, and like in the 50s or early 60s, you know, a time when uh, that really uh, was a pretty serious accusation. You couldn't even be like an obviously gay entertainer and be publicly out. Um, and so... Uh, Norman Mailer writes this about the idea of homosexuality and repression. Uh, Sir Nigel, if you would. <clears throat> First of all, it should be noticed that uh, Emil Griffith beat Perrette to death. He did beat him to death in, in the boxing match. Yes. <clears throat> anyway, it's neither here nor there. Huh. Norman Mailer on homosexuality. The accusation of homosexuality arouses a major passion in many men. They spend their lives resisting it with a biological force. There's a kind of man who spends every night of his life getting drunk in a bar. He rants, he brawls, he ends in a small rumble on the street. Women say, for God's sakes, he's homosexual. Why doesn't he just turn queer and get it over with? Yet men protect him. It is because he is choosing not to become homosexual. It was put best by Sartre, who said that a homosexual is a man who practices homosexuality. A man who does not is not homosexual. He's entitled to the dignity of his choice. He's entitled to the fact that he chose not to become homosexual and is paying, presumably, his price. Now that even uses the word brawl. Yeah, it's and it, pretty goddamn accurate. Or, it or at least seems close. to describe the existence lived by Walter Fox to a goddamn T. Yeah. Here's from Aaron. I was hoping for some insight into the mind of a guy like Tank Abbott and got what I was asking for with Walter Fox, for better or worse. I must admit, I was rather excited when Fox went on his tirades in the beginning about only beating the shit out of guys who begged for it. I'm Fucking for, begging for it. I'm all for watching two willing, alcohol-fueled meatheads go at it like Godzilla and Mothra in a parking lot. As the book went on, however, I had to come to the realization that Fox's view of quote-unquote begging for it and mine might be fairly dissimilar. <laughs> in my view, a guy tooting his horn rudely a few times while getting fast food doesn't really constitute begging for it. I was about to write this book off as a waste of time when I came across something I never thought possible. Tank Abbott penning a love scene. And here's the quote that we heard earlier from Sir Nigel. My hand is four inches from her crotch, and she is as ready as and she is ready as I get my own private version of the Chinese water torture on my wrist. Move the fuck over, Danielle Steele, says Aaron. Okay, this is as good a time as any to play a little game that uh, that we have set up because we too wondered about what exactly it meant to be begging for it. Um, and so Sir Nigel will lead us in a game that we like to call begging for it. Or not begging for it. 
So Nigel will read off the scenario. Chad and I will try and put ourselves in the shoes of one Walter Fox and determine, is this person begging for it? So Nigel? I'm ready. Wait, let me get one more drink of my... Oh, man, I killed my siren already. Oh, dear God. Number one. You're enjoying a refreshing glass of ale at your local pub when you notice a scumbag in the corner who appears to be giving you the old stink eye. After you shout, screw you, douchebag, at him, he rises from his chair and stands motionless. Begging for it. Let me think. Let's see here. Guy you think is looking at you funny, you yell an insult at him, he stands up, begging for it. Totally begging for it. Begging for it. Yes! That motionless man was just begging for it. Number two, you are drinking and driving with your dog while listening to the Smiths when your harmless fun is suddenly interrupted by the honking of a car horn. As you glance in the rearview mirror, you see a car that you accidentally cut off during your last turn. At a stoplight, the driver pulls alongside you and raises his hands as if to say, What is your problem, bro? Oh, you know, until he raised his hands like that, I was going to say not begging for it. This time, though, raise your hands, begging for it. Uh, let me see here. Guy pulls up <laughs> Carry next the one. to you, raises his hands, begging for it. He is, in fact, begging for yes. it. Yes! He should not have made eye contact <laughs> no, with you. absolutely not. <clears throat> what a scumbag. Number three. You have just finished shouting about how much you would like to, quote, fucking party, unquote, when a waiter at the Olive Garden comes over to your table to ask you to please lower your voice. Hmm. That's a tough one. Waiter makes a request. Seems reasonable. Yeah, I uh, was just yelling. Begging for it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what's that guy's fucking problem? I'm, I did say I wanted to fucking party, so yeah, he's begging for it. Actually, gentlemen, this one is not begging for it. Oh. No, I'm messing with you. He was begging for it. <laughs> begging for it. All right. Hmm. N- number four? Number four. A trainer at your gym asks if you would like to spar a few rounds with a promising young heavyweight. Oh, Begging for it. Definitely begging for it. He wouldn't put you in the ring with this guy unless he wanted you to beat his ass, right? <laughs> uh, trainer or heavyweight is begging for it. Both, Both guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> begging. Number five. You are free on bond pending an assault trial when you happen upon the district attorney who is trying your case. He is with his family, looking all smug and shit like he thinks he's better than you. Oh, begging for it. Definitely you know, begging for it. You know what will really put a kibosh on this assault trial? If you beat up the DA outside yes. the gym. Begging for it. They should not have tried him for a crime. <laughs> <laughs> all right, a couple more comments. This one from Patrick Ryan. Oh, boy. I'm 80 pages into Bar Brawler and the glacial pace is wearing me down. The same chapter written seven times with the words jumbled around. It's not all bad, though. The sexual tension between Walt and Adolf is riveting. Another one from Marcus Wilberg. Chewing through page after endless page of Bar Brawler left me with just one comment. I can't believe Dundas and Folkies tricked me into paying thirteen seventy nine for this. <laughs> I really hope you get a big cut of the sales from Amazon, since I would assume most of the sales are because of your podcast. I recommend you choose a better book for your next book club episode. So do I. I hear Tim Sylvia is about to pen an erotic trilogy titled 300 Pounds of Pale. Oh, would that that were true. Don't tease us so. A comment from Charlie. How can I be the only person on Amazon to give this book one star? (laughs) This is the worst book I have ever read. Plot, nothing happens in all caps. 
It's a horrible reincarnation of Groundhog Day. Fight, drink, train, repeat mercilessly. The tiniest arc, his trial, only serves to set up the next book. Characters. I found Walter repulsive, and his friends were not memorable in any scene, which is true. <laughs> totally true. Next and also, he mentions, he goes to great lengths to mention how they call their group Chaos, yeah, and, and then it never comes back. Yeah, he mentions it in the first chapter. Yeah, and, never and then again. he just totally forgets about it. He has friends? <laughs> Presumably. Yeah, Papa Chulo is one of his friends. Yeah. They hang out at his house, they play foosball also, in, the, uh, uh, in the garage. if you want to know how tall someone is and how much they weigh, Walter Vox will tell <laughs> you all the, the time. You, because he will always let you know who is watching his six in a bar fight. Here, More from Charlie. Why are there no women in this Warriors? life as the book closes and walter has sex with his roommate's booty call parenthetically classy it doesn't go anywhere and seems written written in because an editor told him to add a love interest and this is all tank could come up with in the end the dog was my favorite character okay here's something i want to note uh, one of the things that i feel is really uh interesting either intentionally or or not is uh the obvious contradictions Sometimes, oh, yeah. from one sentence to the next, uh, in the character of Walter Fox, uh, which I want to believe that they have to be uh, intentional, because otherwise, I don't see how you don't even notice them while you're writing, much less proofreading. For instance, here is Walter Fox describing a Russian history professor uh, at his, col his college of Long Beach State. Long Beach State, where he's a history yeah, well, he is a history major. He's describing a, the Russian history professor when he walks in the class, of course, hungover one day. Sir Nigel, if you would. <clears throat> He's wearing a traditional, colorful Russian peasant shirt that goes down to his knees and looks more like a dress to me. Being that he's about six feet three inches tall, it's a painful sight for my hungover eyes. His looks don't really bother me, though, but the clashing colors do. I don't pay attention to how people dress or act as long as they leave me alone. What the fuck was that? <laughs> now see, he doesn't pay attention to how people dress, even though he's just spent the last three sentences describing how somebody dresses and criticizing them for it. Uh, now, now let's well before you read this next one, let's say this description of the Russian professor and the the part where he says he doesn't care how people dresses comes one chapter after after Walter Fox beats the shit out of a dude because Walter Fox and his buddies are sitting outside a bar making fun of what people are wearing. Yes, one chapter. <laughs> yes. Now later in the book, um, and I believe this is either while he's out on bond pending the trial or while he's out on bond pending the sentencing. I can't remember which one exactly. But anyway, he's got pending legal shit hanging over his head. Then he's in a bar, sees a, quote, pretty boy poser with, quote, color-coordinated surfer clothes who is has been on his list for a long time. Uh, a scumbag who's been begging for it, in other words. Then when he goes to try and attack the guy and the guy briefly escapes him around the pool table, the bartender comes out, sees Walter Fox trying to attack one of the patrons and shouts at him, leave him alone, you asshole. Walter Fox's reaction, the pretty boy must be popping her, I think. A lot to digest here. For one thing, if you wear clashing colors, Walter Fox will talk shit on you. If you wear color-coordinated colors, you're a pretty boy fucking poser, Walter Fox will talk shit on you. Also, while he's trying to assault a bar patron and the bartender tells him to stop doing that, the first thing to come to his mind is that there must be a sexual relationship uh, between these two, otherwise no one would do that. That 
is a weird insight into Walter Fox's mind. And this book is chock full of them. Here's a comment from Ryan Manahan. As an English teacher who has taught creative writing from grades 4 through 12, I can honestly say that this wasn't the worst thing I've ever read. There you go. And in comparison to other works that have been sent my way, it's actually good. Put that on the back of the book jacket. While his writing uses far too many cliché and hackneyed phrases, there's a great amount of confidence and a fearlessness in his writing that is very admirable. If a young David Lee Abbott was a student in my grade 10 English class and handed in a few excerpts of his writing to me, I would give him a mark in the low to mid-70s, a C or a C-, and I'd tell him, You've got a lot of work ahead of you, buddy, but I can see you're really trying. Hard. Good job. This book actually seems to be a mixture, mixture of Essie Hinton's The Outsiders and the movies Encino Man or Son-in-Law, re- <laughs> replacing Oklahoma of the mid-1960s with an early 90s version of California, greasers and socias with warriors, posers and wannabes, and the mild stoner humor of Polly Shore with the street justice of Walter Fox. While it wasn't a good book, I'm interested to see what comes up next in the story of Walter Fox, Quick question, why do you think he omits the E in Before There Were Rules? <laughs> okay, here's something. If we're looking for complexity in the character, and if we're looking technique-wise at the writing, one of the things you'll always hear in these creative writing classes, show, don't tell, right? Here's an example. I don't know if he did it accidentally or on purpose. I'm going to give him the benefit on the doubt and say that he was doing it on purpose to show us. Walter Fox, uh, when he goes to jail, spoiler alert, when he when he is convicted, oh, you just ruined the end you know, of Barbara. If you're listening, if you listen, we've been doing like 40 minutes or something in the podcast. If you're listening that far, I think you've given up on reading it. Uh, he is convicted of this assault charge based on some legal trickery that uh, Chad's lawyer wife assures me is legally impossible. Uh, anyway, his greatest fear, it seems, is that once he goes into jail, he will be unable to stop himself from beating up the scumbags in jail who are begging for it, right? Which seems like a valid concern because a very valid he can't concern. stop himself from beating up the scumbags. He can't go to the goddamn drive through without beating someone up. So yeah, it seems like that is probably going to happen, that he's going to go to jail, somebody's going to say some shit to him, he's going to beat him up, and assault charges, assault charges are just going to pile up, and Walter Fox is going to turn 180 days into 15 years before you know it. That seems like a completely reasonable fear on his part, right? Yes. And he's really determined not to make that happen. Now, when he turns himself in, and, he, and he's in the holding tank, before they're even telling him where they're going to send him, what correctional facility he's going to do this 180 days at, he's just now turned himself in. Has not even been given his prison clothes yet. He has this huge fear hanging over his head. And this scene happens while he's sitting in the holding tank, uh, and he sees a couple inmates go by in uh, typical prison garb with yellow plastic plastic bracelets working as janitors. Typical jail losers, I think, he says. Again, Walter Fox doesn't judge people for what they wear. Uh, he but, judges them even when they're in the exact same position that he is. <laughs> but anyway, he sees these two... Uh, Inmates working as janitors. Here's what happens, Sir Nigel, if you will. One of the janitors makes eye contact with me, and I glare at him. He stares at me for a moment, and then a thin, cruel smile crosses his lips. Hey, I remember you, he says loudly, his voice muffled through the glass. We're gonna get you, sucker! Is he talking to you? The college boy asks. 
He'll be sorry if he is, I say. I walk to the glass wall and with a sudden movement punch the door. The loudmouth scumbag jumps back away from the wall and I point at him. You're dead, I bark. I'll teach you not to mess with me. Now see, that is Walter Fox, scared that he will commit assaults behind bars that will keep him behind bars. He, it's day one, like our one of his stay in a correctional facility. And he is telling people that they are dead. <laughs> Here's a comment from Kim S., who refers, obviously, to the uh, trope in this novel where almost every chapter starts with Walter Fox waking up in the morning. From Kim S. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> is anyone else tired of that motif? How many chapters should be started out with an alarm clock? According to Tank, almost every chapter. It's the highest on the list of themes that Tank runs into the ground. It's not uncommon in the literature world that an author will name a character something that either describes the character or is meant to belie. Nothing is worse than such a motif used heavy-handedly. John Witless? Abe Contrary? By the way, for, if I can stop you there. Yeah. John Witless, his defense attorney? Yes. Uh, his name is spelled differently from one sentence to the next. Back and forth. Yeah. And Abe, Which really brings, you, brings up some questions about proofreading here. Abe Contrary is the DA whose interests are contrary to that of Walter Fox. Huh. So here's more from Kim S. What the fuck? Seriously? <laughs> the scene where Mr. Double X Fox threatens Witless in his office and John Witless says, You're really scaring me. I laughed out loud. I'm guessing Mr. Double X Fox is what Tank sees himself as. A man so damn tough that he can curdle milk with one look and not even a heavy bag can survive his barrage of ghetto child punches. Yeah, that scene where he threatens Witless in yeah, his office. He threatens his attorney, by he, the way. He threatens to kill his attorney and his family. Yes, because he's convicted of a crime that, that he, he committed. is 100% guilty of, by the way. Yeah, that's the, that's the really, I mean, again, here's where I have to wonder if this isn't brilliantly rendered scumbag narrator. The guy who tells himself constantly that he is the victim uh, and yet is doing stuff all the time that we see uh, is obviously making him a re reprehensible human being. I hear... Just to show an example of how this is sometimes done uh, when a real writer, maybe the best writer ever, uh, does it, here is a, a section from Lolita where Vladimir Nabokov, with the, the character of the pedophile, who is sitting there reading a newspaper, he has positioned himself so that he can directly see the, his stepdaughter, the 13-year-old the daughter of the woman he has just married, he knows she's going to be coming back from swimming, wearing a bathing suit, and so he has positioned himself in such a way that he can have contact with her while he's pretending to read the newspaper, uh, if you will, Sir Nigel. <clears throat> My darling, my sweetheart stood for a moment near me, wanted the funnies, and she smelt almost exactly like the other one, the Riviera one, but more intensely so, with rougher overtones, a torrid odor that at once set my manhood astir. But she had already yanked out of me the coveted section and retreated to her mat near her focine mama. 
There my porcine mama. There my beauty lay down on her stomach, showing me, showing the thousand eyes wide open in my eyes, blood, her slightly raised shoulder blade, and the bloom along the incurvation of her spine, and the swellings of her tense, narrow natties clothed in black, and the seaside of her schoolgirl thighs. Silently, the seventh grader enjoyed her green-red-blue comics. Now see, that is a pedophile describing to you the erotic feelings he sees upon seeing a seventh grade girl in her bathing suit. Uh, it's the kind of thing where when you step back and realize what's happening, it is absolutely fucking repulsive. Uh, but yet he manages to seem somehow almost charming while he's doing it uh, and somehow sympathetic. I submit to you, that perhaps Tank Abbott, though not as skilled as Nabokov, which could be said of any of us here in this room, uh, <laughs> with the possible exception of Sir Nigel, there we go. Uh, if he is going for the same thing, it's kind of genius. Yeah, no, it would be. It would be kind of genius. Here's the last, <laughs> You're not uh, buying it, are you? last listener uh, comment, and then uh, we'll do some final thoughts and we'll wrap up because we're going to be over an hour here momentarily. From Patrick Ryan. Bar Brawler is an amazing read and a thorough examination of a most fascinating individual. I almost want to pick it back up and reread the fast-paced world of foosball, drunk driving, unpleasant depictions of terrible beatings, and worrying dog affection. Truly an incredible story brought to life by clunky historical references, bizarre metaphors, and a meandering, repetitious prose style. For real, though, I hate Walter Fox. This has got to be the least self-curious or self-conscious character ever poorly written. A truly awful human being, doling out violence and giving himself a free pass due to an asinine and absurdly vague code of conduct. He could be a lawyer, teacher, or even a pro boxer if he wanted to, but he just doesn't want any of those lives, man. Just like the kid on the playground who can jump higher and run faster than anybody else, only he doesn't feel like proving it. Yeah, I, but here's the thing. I think if you if you don't come away from reading this book hating Walter Fox, there's something wrong with you. Walter Fox is a deplorable human being. Yeah, he's despicable. He's a complete he makes piece all these excuses shit. for himself that he will not allow to anyone else. He, for instance, when he is talking about the lady blue blood judge, and he cannot believe how she feels so superior to everyone. Again, he's After he climbing inside the her head. Entire book. Feeling superior to everyone he's come in contact with. Yeah, and he, when he sees the judge, is just kind of like uh, appalled that you know she can walk around. That the, he imagines the uh, source of her, all her pleasure in life comes from feeling superior to others. One might even say judging others. Uh, and yet, there's also that scene where he is going to work out, and he jogs around the track of the high school. Do you remember this scene? Yeah. Yes. And he sees some some dudes playing flag football uh, on the field while he's jogging around the track. And he makes a note of how some goofs are playing flag football, completely unaware that the guy running around the track could rip all their heads off. Now, those dudes didn't do anything to him. They didn't say anything to him. They weren't being dicks to him or to anyone. They were just minding their own business, having a pleasant day, playing some flag football. And Walter Fox needs you to know that he is superior to them because he could beat them up. Unless 
One of them was Maurice Smith. Well, yeah. See, and that is the other thing. If we start connecting it back to Tank Abbott and think he is trying to give us a barely fictionalized account of his own life, you're like, man, I remember watching you fight. You weren't that good. You were good for, like, a fat dude who could hit hard and didn't know a whole lot of techniques. If even one of those dudes playing flag football was Maurice Smith, you're in a world of shit. Perhaps the enduring question that we're left with after our dissection of Bar Brawler is... What was Tank Abbott's intent? Did he write this hero, as he refers to Walter Fox in the preface, as a likable guy that we're supposed to rally behind and root for him as injustice after injustice are heaped upon him? Or did he write Walter Fox knowing that he's a piece of shit? Now, that is that is the question. Um... Perhaps no one will know unless someone asks Tank Abbott. I think it seems well okay here's here's one quote about Tank Abbott the man that I think could illuminate a lot for us. This is from uh Jake Rosen who did a uh oral history thing on the ultimate ultimate tournament uh the the last I believe single night tournament that the UFC did. And this is from uh old old-timey UFC matchmaker Art Davey. Uh, talking about you know his impressions of Tank Abbott generally. Sir Nigel? <clears throat> At UFC 8 in Puerto Rico, I ended up in a bar in Bayamon. Tank came in and said to everybody in Spanish, quote, I think you're all, brackets here, homosexuals, you're all, brackets, gay slur, I'll kick anybody's ass in the house, like he was John L. Sullivan. The whole place got quiet. I looked at Tank and looked at the crowd and went, this is going to be a riot. And Tank looked at me and smiled like, we're going to have some fun. He's not irrational, but if he decides he wants to kick your ass, and Pat Smith is a good example, he'll jump you in a hotel elevator and he'll kick the shit out of you. He doesn't think twice about it. There's no sense of morality. Hmm. Now, does that not sound to you like Walter Fox? Yeah, that's pretty much the spitting image of Walter Fox there. And yet, a guy who thinks that he is the only honorable man alive. Which, you know, is probably a really uh, integral part of his personal pathology, I think, of his, you know, his narcissism in a big way. I would think, you know, one of the things that I was kind of looking forward to after reading the, the prologue to this novel, where he makes a point of going after Tito Ortiz, personally, uh, referring to him as, I, I think, like a a guy who dyes his hair and shaves his legs to try to be famous. You don't know that's Tito. You don't know that. I guess he could be referring to Tiki. Yeah, there uh, you go. But we don't even get to that part. We don't even get... How I, do like, you know what, that that's Matt of, Hughes's natural hair color? One of the things saying. I wanted to read this book for was to hear Walter Fox as a lens for Tank Abbott commenting on the early UFC. And there's like six paragraphs about the we UFC. We didn't even get to the point in the Walter Fox story where he joins the uh, no-holds-barred fighting championship, as it's referred to in the book. And the second book in this series is entitled Street Soldier, and I think that the last book is entitled maybe Cage Warrior, something like that. So it's possible we don't even get there till the third book. And I'm not reading the second one. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, that that is a, a bit of a surprise. It seems like perhaps Tank Abbott thought that uh, people would, would buy into the trilogy all at once. Uh, maybe just based on name recognition? I don't know. 
Anyway, this has been our discussion of Bar Brawler on the co-main event podcast, Book Club. Maybe next time we'll choose a book we all will enjoy. But it has, I mean, whatever book we choose, I think we can agree that it has to have some kind of signature alcoholic beverage. Because I'm, I'm down with these sirens now after this thing. I don't know about you. Well, yeah, we're going to shut this off, drink four or five more sirens, play some foosball in the garage, watch Letterman. Yeah, watch Letterman then pass out with our dog. Wrestle with the dog and then go to bed. Just a couple of lonely men hanging around by ourselves. Yeah. Anyway, I dare that, you to say a thing about it, though. You'll be begging for a beating, you scumbag. That's the book club. Maybe we'll be back again. I don't know. But as for now, we're done. We're through. We're out.